Will you stand and let's sing together the wonderful cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, bids me come and die. That I may truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, all who gather here by grace draw near and bless your name.
Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And for our well-being, the chastening fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Oh, Father God, it is impossible for us even to begin the grasp of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done in our behalf. And tonight, Lord, as we ponder Jesus upon the cross, again, we contemplate things too deep and holy for us to fully comprehend. We ask that by your Holy Spirit tonight, what you desire to enter into our hearts and what you desire for us to carry out of this room by your Spirit and our submission to you that will be accomplished through Jesus. Amen. You may be seated as I read the account from Mark chapter 15, verses 15 to 39, which is one of the more brief accounts of what we remember tonight. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers took him away into a place that is the praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed him up in purple. And after reaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to claim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed spitting at him, kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had knocked him, mocked him, they took the purple robe off and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. 
and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And thus the scripture was fulfilled which says he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. When the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Stand with me. Last night, Bill presented in such an effective way the need of the blood. Tonight, let's sing, There is a fountain filled with blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinner's blood beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains lose all all their guilty stains their dying feet rejoice 
confession in the very presence of our Lord. Will you be seated? Last night, our room was lighted by candles because that would have been the atmosphere in the room in which Jesus and the twelve apostles met to observe the Jewish Passover, the Seder feast. And it was during that feast, of course, in which our Lord took the unleavened bread and in a striking way said, 
Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. And then at the last of the dinner, he took the last cup, which is called the cup of the blessing, and said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. All of you drank of it and instituted the Lord's Supper, which we celebrated and participated in last night. Last night, the cross was draped in purple because purple is the color of royalty, and the cross was empty, but it was awaiting the arrival of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Tonight again, the cross is empty, but it is draped in black. Because about 13 hours after the disciples and Jesus left the upper room, he was nailed to a cross. And having hung upon that cross for about six hours, his body was removed and hurriedly placed in a tomb. Listen to these words from Peter spoken on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And as we say tonight, the cross is draped in black and it is empty because his body was rather hurriedly and temporarily prepared for burial. After Jesus breathed his last and his body was placed in the tomb, it seems that Peter and John went to a home in Jerusalem, probably the home of John Mark's mother, where they spent time occasionally. We have no idea where Thomas went. He went off by himself somewhere. But the other eight apostles, along with the women, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Martha, and so on, went to Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, because that's the place that Jesus had used as his headquarters during this entire week. Uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had hosted Jesus and his disciples. Well, as these eight disciples and the women and Lazarus pondered what they had just experienced, no doubt over and over again they kept rehearsing the words that Jesus spoke on the cross and in a way pondered what some of them meant. Tonight, as we have done in previous years on these Friday nights, 
We're going to join that group in Bethany and with them ponder the events of the day and with them ponder the words of Jesus as he spoke them from the cross. But before we begin our reflections, we must realize it was great, great difficulty that Jesus spoke from the cross. In the 1980s, sometime in the middle 1980s, I was visiting my family physician who was a Christian. He said, Jim, you know, there's an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that's just come out. You need to read it. It's about the physical death of Jesus. I didn't read it, but sometime later, recalling that, I researched it and found it. I might suggest you consider reading that sometime, March 1986, JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association. As I read that article, I was so impacted with the physical suffering our Lord endured. From that time forward, I have never been able to view the cross as I had in the past. Last Thursday, Ed sent me an email with some Music appropriate for Easter. Okay, I clicked the link and it brought me to a um, YouTube. But it said, this video is not appropriate for viewers under 16 years of age. You have to establish who you are before you can watch it. I thought, Easter music? What kind of a video could be associated with that that was inappropriate? But I established my age and went to it, and I saw why. It was a reenactment of all the bloody things that happened to Jesus. Unless one is a sadist who delights in looking at suffering, when we see such horror, at least for me, I want to avert my eyes. I don't want to look at it. And yet tonight I believe our Lord would have us look at it. And so I'm going to bring to your attention, as we have in previous years, what was in that JAMA article describing the physical death of Jesus. First, we have to consider what Jesus experienced before he was crucified. Three of the gospel accounts say, as we read tonight from Mark, having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And in Mark, after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified in John 19.1. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. It's interesting, Luke makes no mention of that event, but but three do. Even though these details are scanty, my, 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 here's what happened. German, or rather, the Roman scourging consisted of 39 lashes. Now, the law said you could not whip a man more than 40 times. 
If you struck him 41, then the executioner had to be whipped. And so 39 lashes were applied. The Roman flogging was very, very painful and brutal. It consisted of a whip with several strands. On the end of each strand, there was a metal ball, and as the lash was applied to the back, it bruised and bruised and bruised. And entwined in all the strands, there were pieces of metal and bone that began to shred the flesh all the way down to the buttocks, sometimes to the point that the spine was actually exposed. And those so flogged lost great amounts of blood. And here's an interesting thing. You remember in the garden when Jesus had gone to the garden after the episode in the upper room. He knelt and prayed and sweat great drops of blood. The JAMA article describes how that can happen. And he cried out, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Then he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Echoing what he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he went back to the apostles and they'd been sleeping and woke them up. And then Judas arrived with a contingent of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And you remember Peter whipped out his sword and took a swing at the servant of Malchus, and his ear came off, and Jesus said, Put your sword up. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And put the ear back on the man and said, Don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels? Now, 12 legions is 72,000. <laughs> I could call down 72,000 legions of angels if I wanted to. But he didn't. And then John tells us in 18.4, Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. He knew about the flogging that was going to experience. He knew everything that was going to happen to him on the cross. But Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. What a striking statement. He chose to walk the path. Sunday we celebrate a wonderful, joyous event. But the road Jesus had to walk to get there was horrible, almost beyond comprehension. Knowing all things that were coming upon him, Jesus went forth. Many people died from being flogged because of the excessive loss of blood. And according to this article I read, they would have experienced hypovolemic shock, which happens when there's such loss of blood that the heart begins to race as the heart is trying to pump blood that just isn't there. The kidneys shut down as the body tries to pervert preserve the fluids, the blood pressure drops, and there's just tremendous thirst. 
as the body is craving more fluid. My brother, my sister, that's what Jesus experienced even before he went to the cross and knowing all things that were coming upon him, he went forth. Initially, Jesus was forced to carry the patibulum. Now, the patibulum was the cross beam that would be later put upon the cross. And he started the path from the praetorium to Golgotha. But he was so weak, he stumbled and fell. We can understand why he was weak, can't we? And they grabbed a man just happened to be there, Simon of Cyrene. Later, his two sons became well-known in the church. That's why it says his father, Rufus and Alexander, and he carried the patibulum for Jesus to Golgotha. And when they arrived at Golgotha, the patibulum was placed on the ground, and Jesus was placed on top of it. And nails were driven into the median nerve. The article describing that said, if you ever have bumped your crazy bone, think about this. It's like there's a pair of pliers applied to that nerve and it never quits. An English term was coined excruciating, which means from the cross. And that word was coined because of what Jesus experienced when the nails were driven into his hand. Knowing all things that were coming upon him, he went forth. And then the patibulum and Jesus were dragged to what was going to become the utmost post, the upright post, where there was a notch, and then the patibulum was put into that, it was secured, and then they raised it and stuck it into a ground into a socket in the ground. And Jesus' shoulders were pulled out of joint, knowing all things that were coming upon him, he went forth. His feet were placed together and nails driven into his feet with his knees slightly bent. Now the Romans wanted those being crucified to die slowly. And hanging in that situation with dislocated shoulders, the only way one could breathe would to push himself up with his legs. Exhale, inhale, slump down. Then again, exhale, inhale, slumped down. That's the only way Jesus could breathe. And when all of the air from the lungs could not be expelled, then respiratory acidosis developed. 
And that happens when carbon dioxide in the lungs and the blood become carbonic acid, causes a rapid heartbeat, knowing all things that were coming upon him. He went forth. So here's our Lord having the hypovolemic shock, now experiencing the acidosis, which produced pericardial effusion, that's fluid that begins to form around the heart, and pleural effusion, which is fluid begins to form around the lungs. And that explains later when a soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side, blood and water came out. That was the effusion and the blood mixed together, knowing all things that were coming upon him, Jesus went forth. And the way to hasten a crucified man's death was to break his legs. <laughs> Later we noticed that was done to the thieves. So, as we look at these horrible sufferings of Jesus, almost too much to look at, and yet they are precious jewels in our faith because he made the choice. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. Now, when Jesus spoke from the cross, we have to realize the preciousness of every word because of what it took for him to speak. And the first words, Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The Greek verb describing this indicates that Jesus said this over and over again, not just once. I have to wonder, when he was stretched out on the patibulum and they were driving those nails into the base of his hand at that median nerve, each time a hammer blow struck the nail, did Jesus say, Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. But he said it over and over again. Of whom was he speaking? The Sadducees were there, and they hated him because he had touched their money. You remember Sunday before he had gone into the temple and driven out the money changers and he had become their arch enemy even more than he had been before. Pharisees were there. Jesus had embarrassed them more than once. These Pharisees who demanded respect, Jesus had embarrassed them more than once by pointing out their hypocrisy in a way that it could not be hidden. They hated him and wanted him out of the way. The zealots were there. 
Zealots were a Jewish group that wanted to get rid of the Romans. And remember that one point they tried to put a crown on Jesus' head and make him king so he could lead them to fight the Romans and Jesus refused and walked away. He would not cooperate with their political agenda. The Herodians were there. The Herodians were a group that were loyal to Rome and to Herod. And both Jesus and his cousin John had pointed out the sinful behavior that was going on in Herod's palace and embarrassed Herod. So the political and personal agendas of these individuals, these four groups, had been the driving force that caused the crucifixion of Jesus as far as human reasons were concerned. But also there was a fifth group, the Roman soldiers. They didn't really know what they were doing, but they were enjoying it. We read of the horror that Roman soldiers loved to inflict on people, but they would not have crucified Jesus if the Jews had not pushed it, but they did, and they reveled in it. So remember, not only Jews, but Gentiles also crucified our Lord. And as Jesus looked down from the cross at his enemies, those who were hating him, mocking him, casting insults, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Matthew 27, verses 39 and following. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and Pharisees, were mocking him and saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down the cross. We'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Then let God rescue him now. If he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the Roman soldiers who mocked him said, This king of the Jews, ha! Ah, and Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. And in that agonizing hour, he said, Father, forgive them. Over and over, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Isaiah 53:12 Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great He will divide the bounty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors Yet he himself bore the sins of many and then here's the line and he interceded for the transgressors you know, it's rather amazing, isn't it, that they could behave in this way? 
They had seen his miracles. That's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. You know, he did all these things among you. You know it well as as we, as any. They had seen these things. They had seen lives changed. They had seen the deaf given hearing. They had seen the blind restored to sight. And yet, (laughs) Jesus said it would be that way. They would see and not believe when he gave the parable of the sower. And Paul explained the situation in 2 Corinthians 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice that Jesus frequently called the Pharisees blind. (laughs) And one reason Jesus asked for mercy was because he knew the true enemy was not these people before him mocking him, but the true enemy was Satan. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Scripture says. That's something to remember, brother and sister. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, what was Jesus asking God to do? Surely he could not have been asking him to forgive unrepentant people. Every time in Scripture there's any kind of forgiveness, repentance is always there. Could it not be that what he was doing was asking God to withhold vengeance for seven weeks? When on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit would come and for the first time the gospel of Jesus would be proclaimed in its fullness and those who had stood mocking would for the first time hear the full good news and could be saved. I personally believe that's what Jesus was asking. Hold off. Give them time. But for you and for me, The most important truth is how are we to respond to those who speak ill of us, who show evil toward us, sometimes abuse us. About 50 years later, Peter wrote this. What credit is there If when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, if you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Father, forgive them. And Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him went forth. 
And then another time, Jesus pushed himself up. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Remember, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And the Jews wanted it that way because they wanted to discredit him to say, here is a criminal. And those criminals who were crucified, one on the right and one on the left, oh, how angry they must have been with Jesus. First of all, their death had been hastened so they could be brought out to be crucified with him. Also, they were now being crucified in front of a crowd and they could not have suffered privately. Not only that, Perhaps they would have been executed by beheading or some other manner and not crucifixion. And so they began to hurl insults at Jesus just as the mockers were doing. But after time, something happened in the heart of one of them. One of those criminals found himself strangely moved by this mysterious person who is dying beside him. Wonder, we have to wonder, had he ever at some point ever heard Jesus and teaching and seen him prior to today? We don't know. But his tone began to change. Luke twenty three forty. The other answered in rebuking the one thief said, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we indeed justly, we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I want you to notice that from the lips of this criminal, we hear the only recorded protest to what was happening to Jesus. Notice six things about this thief. He was repentant. I'm guilty. I deserve it. He considered Jesus to be the Messiah. He actually called him Lord in verse 42 of Luke 23. That's recorded. In so doing, he made a public confession of his faith. And he appealed to Christ for salvation. Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom And Christ promised to save him and promised to take him with him that very day. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Think about these two men. Later when they died, Jesus, of course, died first. And a few hours later, the thieves died. And one went to Hades where he waited the judgment day. Hades is the word meaning the place of the dead. And in scripture it seems Hades has two areas. One is where the damned, and they know they're damned, but they're waiting the day of judgment. The other is the area called paradise, where those who belong to Jesus, will be spending the years with him 
waiting for the return and the end of the age. And so the one thief went to the lower regions of Hades to wait the judgment. But think about the other one. When he breathed his last in the spirit, with open arms, Jesus was saying, welcome into paradise. What a thought. What a thought. We have to wonder what happened to Jesus between that Friday afternoon death and that Sunday morning resurrection. We just have very fleeting glimpses. Peter tells us that after his death on the cross, Jesus went into Hades and announced, informed everybody there, especially those in spiritual prison, what he had done. But so much we just can't do this, can't grasp this. We have to say it's vague exactly what his spirit was doing between his death and his resurrection. But the important point for you and for me is this. All of us who have received Jesus Christ, like that good thief on the cross, if we dare call him good, will enter his very presence. Romans 8.38 I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't we thankful for that? And then, woman, behold thy son, Son, behold thy mother. It seems that when God chose to cause Jesus to be born of a virgin, he did not choose Mary, but he chose a family of which Mary was the chosen member. John the Baptist, for example, was Jesus' second cousin. James and John, the apostles, were Jesus' first cousins. Their mother, Salome, was Mary's sister. Another interesting thing, too, you never find anywhere in Scripture Jesus calling Mary mother. He always used the term in our Greek translation, gune, which means woman, similar to the way we say ma'am. I was at Phil's Diner some years ago, and the waitress did something. I said, thank you, ma'am. Don't call me ma'am. I'm not your mother. I said, ma'am, I've always called ladies ma'am. I'm not a lady. <laughs> but I don't know about you. <laughs> But ma'am, to me, is a respectful way of speaking to a lady. And Gune was like that. And so it's interesting that we never find anywhere in Scripture Jesus calling Mary mother. It's always ma'am, so to speak. Isn't that an interesting thing? But in his agony of death, 
Jesus provided for Mary. He said, Mary, look at your nephew John, and as if he were a son. And John, look to your Aunt Mary, as if she were your mother. You know, think about this. In all of the record we have of the life of Jesus, we have only two times where he focused on himself and his own needs. Once in the garden, (laughs) when he cried out to God, let this cup pass from me. And once on the cross, he said, I thirst. But all the other times, really, his focus seemed to always be on others. Another thing that captures our attention is in the midst of what he was going through, Jesus fulfilled his earthly responsibility. Paul wrote to Timothy, If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family, and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. And the word translated grandchildren in some versions is nephews. The word is egnos, which means descendants. The point is, family takes care of family. And Jesus was fulfilling the responsibility of a son to a mother. This is in great contrast to the hypocritical Pharisees Mark 7, 9, Jesus was saying to them, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by is... Corbin, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. Well, if there's any point for us to learn from this, it is that Jesus as the Son of God, expects us to fulfill earthly responsibility. (sighs) My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, the Psalm of David, a cry of anguish. He expressed his anguish through these words of a psalm. According to Matthew and Mark, at that time darkness came upon the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour. Now, in the Gospels, we find that Mark and Matthew use Jewish time, where John tends to use Roman time. So when John tells us that the trial before Pilate ended about the sixth hour, but men the 
trial ended at 6 o'clock in the morning. It had gone through the night. And Mark tells us the crucifixion began at the third hour of the day. So according to Jewish time, that would be at 9 a.m. The New Testament Jewish time. So three hours transpired between the end of the trial and when they began nailing the nails into Jesus' body. By the same token, Matthew and Mark tell us that darkness came over the whole land from the 6th to the ninth hour. That would have been from noon until 3 o'clock. So Jesus had hung on the cross for three hours before the darkness came. But when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Darkness came upon the land. It's interesting how God had responded in different ways to Jesus. Remember when he came up out of the waters of being immersed by John, from heaven a voice said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration there was a bright light And God said, this is my son. And when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God responded this time with a veil of darkness. To hide to a degree what his beloved son was going through. The physical torture was certainly real, but we have to realize the spiritual torture was well. It was as well. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus hated sin, and yet... That had to become his identity. Think of that. Taking on the thousands of sins of millions of people, millions of sins of millions of people. And that was the burden that Jesus bore. But God the Father did not bear that on this day. Jesus had to bear it alone. And God, as it were, brought darkness. Brought darkness. But Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. And his fifth statement, I heard. Now, that's a common request of people who are dying. Especially should be expected of someone who went through what Jesus had gone through. And when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, Samabakthani, Aramaic, which by translation means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of those who standing there heard him say, Eloi, Eloi, oh, he's... This man's calling for Elijah. 
And Matthew describes that immediately one of them ran and taken a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. The rest of them said, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And the man said, well, that's why I gave him the drink, to see if he would. Notice that when they were getting ready to crucify Jesus, they tried to give him myrrh mixed with wine. Now, there were a group of charitable women in Jerusalem who would show up at crucifixions, and they would give this potion to the crucified. It was a painkiller to try to reduce the suffering. But you'll notice Jesus refused to accept that. But here... He accepted the sour wine, which was the normal fare of Roman soldiers. He accepted the sponge of sour wine to slake his thirst, but certainly not to quench it. Remember in the classic Ben-Hur, some of you have read, perhaps seen the movie, Ben-Hur, an heroic deed, rushed to give a drink to, to Jesus. <laughs> and... Uh, but this one man said, stand back, I'm giving him this. Let's just see if Elijah will come and help him. And then the soldiers, when he moaned, this was a moan. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They used that as an occasion to mock him. And the soldiers mocked him coming up to him and offering him sour wine. He said, if you're a king of the Jews, save yourself. Again, a lesson for us is this. Jesus was not play-acting. As a human in a normal human body, he suffered and among all things that were coming upon him, he went forth. And then this. It is finished. Father, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Mark says that Jesus then in one final expulsion of air cried out with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Mark does not record what that cry was. Now, it is finished are not the usual words of a dying man. A dying man might say, I'm finished. <laughs> but Jesus was commenting on the fact that his work was done. Atonement had been accomplished. And that being done, there was no reason to linger any longer. He gave up the ghost. Notice Jesus did not use the miraculous power that he so often displayed to put off death, but accepted it. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You remember in the wilderness, 
Satan kept trying to give Jesus ways to escape his humanity. If you're hungry, turn these stones to bread. Jump off the temple and everyone will worship you. Had he done that, he could have refused, really escaped the cross, but Jesus refused to give his divine power in any way to alter his mission. And so it is. Here, Jesus is in control. Yes, he could have called 72,000 angels, but he didn't. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. It is finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. Tonight, that cross is empty because the work, the work of our salvation is complete. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world for sinners crucified O holy sacrifice, behold the Lamb of God. My brother, my sister, it is finished. We are redeemed. Father in heaven, again, it is so difficult for us to firmly put our gaze upon these things and yet tonight we have sought to do so to once again have our appreciation our gratitude to grow put in our hearts what you want us to have as we go forth in this place may we be well pleasing to you through Jesus Amen